Yes, yes, yes. We exalt thee, O Lord. We exalt thee, O Lord. We exalt thee, O Lord. Because you alone are worthy to be praised. Lord, we thank you for this moment, for yet another opportunity, Lord God, to stand and to share from, from your holy word. Pray, Lord, that it would be all of you and none of me, that you would increase as I decrease. Pray that the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart, would be acceptable in thy sight. Lord, you are my strength, and you are my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, as I said earlier, it's great to be back. Uh, I want to extend a thank you to Johnny Russell, who stood last week and preached uh, from a message that blessed my heart as I sat and watched. And so I pray that all that heard it were blessed uh, by the message. And today, uh, we'll pick back up where we left off a couple of weeks ago in our series in the book of Ruth. Book of Ruth, we'll pick back up with that. And so when we left off la uh, last time, we had completed chapter 1. Uh, so today we'll pick up in Ruth chapter 2. We'll look at all of Ruth chapter 2 today. And so if you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you if you would to join me in Ruth chapter 2. We're going to begin at verse number 1 and we'll read all the way through till the end, verse 23. Uh, and so let's do that. Ruth chapter 2, verses 1 through 23. Here's what it says. And I'm reading from the English Standard Version of God's holy Bible, and here is what the word of the Lord says. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose eyes, whose sight, I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come on the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. And then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one. But keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink 
what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother in your, in your native land and came to people to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? Where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours and one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest another field, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of barley and wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Amen. Ruth chapter 2. We began this series a couple of weeks ago, well, three weeks ago now, that I entitled The Best is Yet to Come. And we did it, and as we have gone through, I have given subtitles to each different section of this series. And so last week, I, a couple of weeks ago, I entitled the second part of chapter one, There's No Place Like Home, as we looked at how Naomi had this desire to go back home. Today, I have chosen for a subtitle, Hope Restored. Hope Restored. Hope, my brothers and sisters, is, I believe you'll agree, an interesting thing. Hope is an interesting thing. It has been defined in many different ways. One such definition is this. It is an optimistic state of mind that is based on an expectation of positive outcomes with respect to events and circumstances in one's life or the world 
at large. For the believer, though, it is not just an expectation. It is a strong and confident expectation. Brother John, it is a strong and confident expectation. Hope, I submit to you, can be and is infectious. It is even has been proven, it has been proven to even uh, have healing properties when one has hope. Healing comes along with that. Emily Dickinson says the following about hope in her poem, Hope is the Thing with Feathers. Here's what Dickinson says. She says this, hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without words and never stops at all. And sweetest in the gale is heard and sore must be the storm that could abash the little bird that kept so many warm. I've heard it in the chillest land and on the strangest sea, yet never in extremity it asked a crumb of me. This is what Dickinson thinks of hope, and it was the English poet Alexander Pope who coined the now popular phrase, hope springs eternal. He coined it in his work entitled An Essay of Man when he writes these words, hope springs eternal in the human breast. Man never is but always to be blessed. The soul uneasy and confined from home rests and expatiates in a life to come. Hope. If you're not familiar with Dickinson or Pope, maybe you'll be familiar with this person, the Apostle Paul. Included hope as one of the virtues of the Christian faith when he writes in 1 Corinthians 13 and 13, and now abate, abideth faith, hope, and love, these three. But the greatest of these, Paul says, is love. Yes, hope is indeed an interesting and an extremely desirable thing. So much so that when it appears that it has been lost, it can be absolutely debilitating and deflating. Hope. On the other hand, though, when it appears that all, when it simply appears that all hope is lost, only to be restored. It is absolutely exhilarating and refreshing. When it seems like as we survey life that hope has been abandoned and things are hopeless rather than hopeful, it can be deflating and debilitating. But when we find out that hope actually has not evaporated and disappeared, but it has been restored. It rejuvenates us. It gives us uh, inspiration to continue to press on. It, continue, it helps us to do that. Uh, this is the exact scenario playing itself out in the lives of both Naomi and Ruth in our text. Now, I know I've been off a week, and I know I wasn't here last week, and I know all that, but y'all making me a little nervous this morning. 
Y'all just a little bit too quiet. Y'all know we can't be quiet now. You're a little bit too quiet. Brother Sam, where you at? All right. <laughs> Amen, somebody. Y'all let me know you're here. Amen. There we go. Y'all know I like to have an amen every now and then. <laughs> this is the scenario that's playing out in the lives uh, that uh, are being portrayed in our text, the lives of Naomi and Ruth. Just to recap, let me do that real quick. Uh, you'll recall that we met Elimelech and his family in chapter one, Naomi, his wife, and his two sons, Mylon and Kalion. They lived in Bethlehem, Judah. Bethlehem was home and it represented the place God wanted them. His will, the house of bread, was Bethlehem and the place of praise, Judah. But they left and sojourned into Moab, God's wash pot, because of a famine that existed in Bethlehem. Not long after they arrived, Elimelech dies and the two sons marry Moabite women, one named Orpah and one named Ruth. Let me back that up and say it again in case you misunderstood, one named Orpah and one named Ruth. When we left off two weeks ago, Naomi had gotten word that the famine was over in Bethlehem. So she chooses, after receiving this good news, to head home. Orpah had decided to stay in Moab. And as a result, we never hear from her again. Nobody that I know of is even named Orpah. And Ruth continues, though, uh, she continues and she commits herself to Naomi and to Naomi's God. So much so that she says these words in chapter one, where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. So she decides to travel along with Naomi to Bethlehem. When Naomi arrives in Bethlehem, she's feeling the weight of her errant decision to join her husband in Moab. So she says to those that recognize her, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. For the Almighty, she says, has dealt bitterly with me. From Naomi's point of view, all hope for a husband, all hope for a family to carry on her husband's name was lost. All hope had been destroyed. God somehow had it in for her. And there was nothing she could do but endure his powerful, unmerciful hand. She was feeling hopeless when she arrived back in Bethlehem. But little does she know that her hope is going to soon be restored by the same almighty God who she thinks has given up on her. Her hope is going to be restored. So as we pick up the story in chapter 2, I'd like to divide it into, into four sections. Four sections in chapter 2. First one will be just verse 1. And in verse 1, here's what I'd like to talk about first, uh, a new character. In verse 1 of chapter 2, we meet a new character who has now been introduced to us. Up to this point, we've only known really the main characters, and they have been Naomi, Ruth, uh, and Orpah. 
Elimelech, certainly, and his sons, Milan and Kalion. Now we arrive in chapter two and we meet this new person. His name is Boaz. All the ladies in the room should have said amen. Because all the ladies want a Boaz. If you're online, you ought to be saying amen. We finally made it to Boaz. <laughs> we made it to Boaz. Who, who is Boaz? Boaz, his name has, 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 has the meaning. His name means, uh, has been, has, has been uh, it, it, it has been intimated that his name could have several different meanings. One of them being lively. His name means lively. He's the son of Salmon. He will become the great-grandfather of King David. Boaz was descended from Nashon, the son of Abinadab. He lived in Bethlehem in the time of the judges and is described as a man of substance. He was a wealthy landowner, a man of substance, having both personal wealth and impeccable reputation. Boaz. The ladies are a little bit too quiet. Y'all ought to be smiling. I know you're smiling behind those masks. <laughs> the heads are nodding. Boaz, this, this man of great wealth and impeccable reputation, he's described by two Hebrew words in verse 1. Verse 1, let me read it again. It says this, uh, so Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan, of Elimelech. In the, in, in the Hebrew, the, the, this description, this phrase that describes him is Gibor Hail. Gibor Hail, right? It's translated, in, it means man of standing or literally a man of valor. This is Boaz, a man of standing, a man of valor. The same words, by the way, are used to describe Gideon, to describe Jephthah, each of whom was called a mighty warrior. These same words. They were men of valor, capable, efficient, and worthy in battle. Boaz was a mighty man of valor, capable in his community, and lived an exemplary lifestyle. Boaz. So just as we did previously with Elimelech, Orpah, Ruth, and Naomi, I'd like to look at three aspects, three things about Boaz as we jump into the heart of this sermon. I like to examine his circumstances. I like to move on to his choices. And then I like to look at the consequences, right? So first, let's, let's look at it, his circumstances. What, what were the circumstances surrounding Boaz? Well, I submit to you that his circumstances were the same as Elimelech's. His circumstances were no different. His circumstances were the same as Elimelech's. Uh, he, 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 he lived in the time of the judges, in the days when the judges ruled, which means that it, were, it was a lawless time. It was a difficult time. It was a time of lawlessness. It was a time of upheaval. He lived in those days as well. He lived just as Elimelech did in the time of famine. There was a famine in the land for him just like it was for Elimelech. But then 
Let's move on, though, since we know his circumstances and they, they don't differ at all from those of Elimelech. Let's look at the choices that he made, because I submit to you before I get into it that his choices are different than those of Elimelech. What are his choices? Although his circumstances were the same as Elimelech's, his choices were starkly different. Elimelech fled to Moab when times got tough. He fled to Moab when times got tough, but Boaz stayed in Bethlehem. He stayed in the house of bread. He stayed in the place of praise. He stayed in the place that God wanted him. He stayed in God's ideal for him, even in the face of hard and difficult times. Elimelech seemed content to live among Moabites. We know that the Moabites were one of the nations that oppressed the Israelites, and they were, as I said before, considered God's washpot. But Boaz, on the other hand, rightly regarded Moab as an enemy and not a safe haven. And so he chooses then not to, not to depart from the house of bread and the place of praise, but to stay firmly rooted and grounded right in the center of God's will, even when times were difficult. Let me say this as a word for us. Word for us is that when times get tough, it's not a, it's not a good idea to leave the place that God wants us to stay, even when the pressure is mounting, even when it's difficult, even when it seems hard, it's still not a good idea to explore other options. Because you'll find out, like Elimelech found out, that an exploration or a sojourn can turn into something much worse. And so it's a good idea that no matter how difficult it gets, stay where God wants you. Because you'll find out in a minute as we examine Boab's consequences that everything will be all right. God will make it all right because weeping endures for a night, but God promises us that joy shall come in the morning. And I stop by to tell you today that for Boaz, joy indeed came because of his obedience to God and staying in the place that God wanted him. So let's examine his consequences. Elimelech. What were his consequences? Remember I told you a few weeks ago that there are good and bad consequences to all of our choices and decisions. Elimelech, uh, uh, Boaz's consequences are, are good. Elimelech did not prosper. In fact, he died along with his two sons while in Moab. Boaz, though, seems to have done reasonably well in Bethlehem, even in hard times. He was a man of substance. He was a man of impeccable reputation. He was an admired man. He was a man who was the ideal husband for any woman who sought one. He did well staying in Moab. And so his consequences were starkly different than those of Elimelech. And so we've first of all started off with looking at this new character, this new character, Boaz. Then I'd like to move on to the second segment of this chapter and talk about this. God 
providentially paves the way. That's the word again. God providentially paves the way. His providence. We've been talking about God's providence for quite some time. All the way back to Esther. All the way back when I, was, when I did Wednesday Bible studies and we were looking at the story of Joseph. Right? And Joseph in chapter 50 verse 20 says, you meant it for evil, but God has turned it into something good. God's providence is always present and it always paves the way if we'll just hold on. So in verses 2 and 3, we see God providentially paving the way. Let's look at two and three again. I want to read it one more time. It says this, and Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to a part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. We see this word glean in both these verses. Let's talk about what that means. What is, what is gleaning all about? Well, it's tied to God's compassionate heart. Gleaning is tied to the fact that God has special concern for certain groups of people. He has concern for, for all people, but he expresses his special concern in his word for, for, for certain groups, right? For, for strangers, or foreigners, for orphans, for widows, for the poor, and for the oppressed. In fact, according to Leviticus 19, 9 and 10, when farmers went through the fields, they could only harvest once. Everything that wasn't quite ready at that time would be left behind for the poor. Also, the corners of the field could not be harvested, but they had to be left also for the poor. Here's what Leviticus 19, 9 and 10 says. If you don't believe me, let me read it for you. Here's what it says. It says this, when you reap, Leviticus 19, 9 and 10, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to his edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest, and you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor. And the sojourner, I am the Lord, your God. This is what gleaning is all about. And Ruth wants to take advantage of this for her and her mother-in-law as they fit the requirements being poor widows who had been left alone after their husbands had died. And so Ruth sets out to glean so that she can bring something to the house that will provide sustenance for her and Naomi, her mother-in-law. So she sets out to do that. And the text is interesting because it says that she happened upon a field belonging to Boaz. Here is where the providence of God comes in, right? Because I don't believe that anything just happens. Okay, I'm going to preach to myself today. I just know, I, I just figured it out. I'm going to get happy. I don't believe, Ricky, that anything happens just as a coincidence. I believe that God is behind everything. There are no coincidences in God. There is no happenstance in God. Me and John are going to have, have church all by ourselves. Amen. Amen. <laughs> I'm not messing with anybody. Y'all know me. Y'all good. You, you, you know. You know how I am. 
It's all right. But, 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 it, but it, it makes me happy when I think about this providence. God providentially paves the way. Ruth did not just happen to end up in the field belonging to Boaz. God was at work behind the scenes orchestrating the entire sequence of events in order that his promises would be fulfilled. This was my brothers and sisters, the beginnings of a divine encounter that would bring about a union that would produce King David and ultimately King Jesus. God was at work behind the scenes, providentially paving the way. And so before I move on to the next session, let me just share with you, be aware and sensitive to the fact that God right now is behind the scenes, KB, providentially paving the way for all of us. So you need to be sensitive to what happens in your life on a daily basis because you don't just wind up anywhere by coincidence because we have a sovereign God who's providential, who's an orchestrator. He's a, he's a conductor. He's he's putting things in place uh, behind the scenes right now in our lives. And so that when you have an encounter, you ought to be sensitive enough to know that God likely is behind this. You have an opportunity, you need to be sensitive enough to know that God likely is behind this. God has the bigger picture in mind. God sees the, the whole field while we can only see what's in front of us. He is in the press box looking down at the whole field. You know, it's where the coaches sit because they can't see the field from the sideline. They are in the press box and God sits high. Somebody finish that for me and looks low because he is working. Nothing in the life of the believer happens by luck, happenstance, coincident. God is providentially paving the way. And so then we see that play out in verses 2 and 3. Then I want to move on to verses 4 through 17. Because in verses 4 through 17, we have what I like to describe as the Redeemer test. We see it in verses uh, 4 through 17. Let me just give you real quick uh, a def the definition of a, of a redeemer. Redeemer is defined as a person who redeems, meaning someone who repays, recovers, saves, or exchanges something for something else. That's a redeemer. That's a general definition of a redeemer. And so then, if, we've, if we're looking at the general definition of a redeemer, I want to talk about some general qualifications of a redeemer, just in general, right? Not specifically talking about Boaz or anything, just some general qualifications of a redeemer. First thing I think that has to be present if one is going to be a redeemer is one has to have compassionate character. Compassionate character. Look at verse 4. Verse 4 says this, And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. 
It says that there was something at work in the heart of Boaz. He was not just a landowner, not just an employer, not just someone who, who, who was wealthy, uh, but he had a compassionate heart. Boaz is a righteous and a moral man who is able to bring Yahweh's blessings to his people and to Ruth. He greets his servants by saying these words, the Lord be with you. And they respond in kind because they know the kind of man that Boaz is. They've already uh, had experiences him, so they respond by saying, the Lord bless you. Uh, the inclusion of this interchange in the narrative allows the reader to recognize immediately that Boaz honors the Lord in his work and is respected by his workers. They know that Boaz is a compassionate, God-fearing man. And so, one of the things that's required if one is going to be a redeemer is one has to have compassionate character. The other thing is that one must be able to pay the price of redemption. Look at verse 5. Verse 5 says this. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? Here's what I like to highlight. He said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, it means that Boaz owned the field. They worked for him. We've already established in verse 1 that he was a wealthy man. He had the wherewithal to pay the price to be a redeemer. Now, we're not necessarily talking about Boaz being a redeemer right now. We're just talking about general qualifications and qualities of a redeemer, right? Well, I submit to you, there's another one who had what it took to pay the price. It requires a significant cost. Redemption comes at a significant cost. And the only way that one can qualify to be a redeemer just in general is that one has to have the wherewithal to be able to pay the cost that is required to redeem something. I'm not even talking about people right now. If you want to redeem anything, you have to have what it takes to be able to do it. That's a general qualification, right? Am, am I right about it? The other thing I see is not only does the Redeemer have to have compassionate character and be able to pay the price of redemption, Redeemer also must be able and willing to offer protection and provision. The Redeemer must be willing to offer. And we see it played out in verses 6 through 17. I won't read all of it for you. I'll just, let's do this. Let's look at verse 8 and 9. Uh, protection and provision. 8 and 9 say this. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have not our charge. So go after them, right? In, in verses 8 and the first part of verse 9, Boaz has commanded the men to leave Ruth alone. Boaz is making sure that no one takes unfair advantage of Ruth. You have to remember, Ruth is a Moabitess. She is a foreigner. She is a stranger. She is from a pagan land. 
She is in a godly land. She is from God's wash pot. She is now in the house of bread and the place of praise. And because of this, it's recognized who she is. And there is a significant threat, the possibility of a significant threat against her life. Because she's a stranger. She's an immigrant. She's not likely to be welcomed in Bethlehem. And so Boaz makes accommodations and he gives strict orders. Do not do anything to Ruth. Because that's what a redeemer does. A redeemer is not only able to, but willing to provide protection. He says, listen, make sure she's not touched. Make sure she's not harmed. But not only does a redeemer provide protection, a redeemer is also able to provide provision. Just look at what it says in verses 9, the rest of this 9b through 17. It talks about how Boaz made provision. Look at 9b. Let's just start there. Have not I charged the young men not to touch you then after that? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. If you have need for something to drink, I have provided it for you. Uh, I have provided uh, water for you to drink because a redeemer is able to to do that. Boaz makes sure that she has everything she needs to be satisfied. She didn't even have to work to get any of what was provided for her because a redeemer offers provision. Look at verse 11 and 12 and I'll show you more of this. Verses 11 and 12. Verse 11 says this. Verse 11. But Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to, the, to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge." Boaz tells Ruth that he knows about her deeds and he knows about her faith in the Lord. He prays that she will receive a full reward for the service she has rendered to Naomi. Boaz in 15 and 16 commanded his men to purposely, this is what he says to them, purposely pull out some extra. You see, when you're, when you're gleaning you're only, you would only be able to get what was left behind and what was left in the corners and what was not ready yet. But Boaz says, no, we're going to go a step further. He says, don't just leave stuff behind. But what I want you to do is pull out some extra from the bundles just for her. Pull out some extra just for her. Why? He wanted Ruth to get so much in his field that she would not want to go anywhere else. And that's what the Lord wants from us is that he wants to provide so much, not just substance, not just material things, not just worldly things, not just any of that. But he wants to provide so much spiritual 
enhancement that we don't have to go look anywhere else. He wants to be so big in our lives that we don't have to search for fulfillment anywhere else. And so this is what Boaz does. He says, pull out some extra so that she don't have to go anywhere else. In 17, uh, let's look at 17. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. About an ephah of barley. When Ruth was done that day, she had an ephah of barley. How many of you know how much an ephah is? By a show of hands. I see all these hands not being raised. <laughs> Anybody know how much? It, it, it's, it's well over a half a bushel. It is about 50 pounds of barley. 50 pounds of barley. She has well over and more than enough to take care of her and her mother-in-law. She has not just enough. She has more than enough. How many of you know that God is a God of not just enough, but more than enough? He's a God of more than enough. I know it's true because the Apostle Paul says so in Ephesians 3.20 when he says, Now unto him, somebody help me, who is able to do exceedingly and abundantly above all that we can ask or think. Now, Paul says, unto him, who's him? Jesus, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, the Jehovah Jireh. Our provider is able to do exceedingly and abundantly above all that we can ask or think. Boaz is a picture of Christ as the provider and protector for his bride. Boaz passes the Redeemer test, but he's not revealed to Ruth just yet as the Redeemer. All she is aware of right now is that this dude is being nice to her, <laughs> right? He's provided for her. He's protected her. Uh, he, 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 this is all that she doesn't know the whole story yet, but she's about to find out in this next passage, this next and last passage of this chapter. I like to call I like to talk about this. Hope is restored here. Hope is restored and the Redeemer is revealed. In verses 18 through 23, verses 18 through, tw through 23, Naomi gets the news that the field Ruth had been gleaning in and from whence she brought all of this barley belongs to a man by the name of Boaz. And all of a sudden, let's look at it, 18. 18 says this, and she took she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? She's, a, she's excited. Man, this is awesome. Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? My goodness, where did all this come from? Bless the man who took notice of you. Who is this dude? So she told her mother-in-law with whom she worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And all of a sudden, what was hopelessness turned to hope. Because something, something happened in Naomi's mind when she heard that name. She heard the name Boaz and all of a sudden there was a shift in her mind 
hope has now been restored. Her, mu- her mood shifts. And in verse 20, Naomi, inform- when Naomi informs Ruth that Boaz, in verse 20, is a close relative. Let's look at verse 20. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours and one of our redeemers. The mood shifts. Hope has been restored. Now, all of a sudden, Ruth has been made to know that the man that she has encountered and met is the man who is able to restore the hope of the entire family. He is a kinsman redeemer, a close relative. He is not just a man who owned the field. Naomi recognizes who he is and the significance of who he is. Naomi says he's one of our redeemers. A redeemer's function as described in the law pertains to two things. He was charged with redeeming family property that had been lost or, or had, was, was in peril of being lost. So he had to have the wherewithal to be able to purchase it back. We've already seen that uh, Boaz is, is well equipped to do that. Number two, he was obligated to marry the widow of the deceased near relatives so as to raise up children to the name of the dead. As a family redeemer, Boaz could fulfill the law of the leveret marriage based on Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10. It was a law in the Mosaic law that said this thing is something that God wanted to see when somebody dies and there's no one to carry on the line, the close relative Oftentimes, the brother was given charge to do it. There's no brother. So it falls then to this kinsman redeemer. And Naomi recognizes this. Boaz, I know him. He's a close relative of my husband, my late husband, Elimelech. And where I thought there was no hope, I see it now. I now see that maybe I can begin to go by Naomi again and not Mara. Maybe the bitterness has been taken away. Maybe the sweet has been restored because now the family line can continue. Hope is always restored when the Redeemer or the Savior shows up. More y'all should have said amen right there. Hope is always restored when the Redeemer or the Savior shows up. Our Redeemer came through 42 generations, including the one we're reading about right here, and showed up over 2,000 years ago. And this is what he said when he showed up. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. When the Redeemer shows up, everything changes. He went to the cross and paid the ultimate price to redeem us and help us to make it 
to the finish line. That's what he did. I'm reminded of a story as a close of a young man by the name of Derek Redmond. He was a runner on the British sprint team. He was running in his event, the 4 by 400 meter relay, with his teammates. At the onset of the race, his team was moving nicely along the track. Then came the baton handoff to Derek. His job was to bring it home. His last leg of the race should have brought his team a good old England gold medal for his team. But as he turned the corner, he pulled an Achilles tendon and fell flat on his face. He lay there on the ground in desperate pain. He didn't want to be there, but he was in too much pain to get up. He began to crawl along the track. You could hear a pin drop in the stands as all eyes focused on him trying to scratch his way forward. It was in the midst of this unfolding drama that a man came down from the stands, went over to the track, and picked Derek up. One of the judges said to him, I'm sorry, sir, but you're not allowed to be here on the track. The older gentleman that had come down from the stands waved his hand and said, leave me alone. This is my boy. Derek Redmond's father left the stands, picked him up and put him, put him over his shoulder. He put his arm around his waist and helped him cross the finish line. The crowd stood up in applause. Derek Redmond and his father got more applause than, than all the runners who had actually finished the race. The people never, that never failed didn't need any help. The one that did needed help. Uh, we have right now someone who is sitting in the stands, who has already come down once. Y'all know the story. He came down once from his place in the holy stands, and he is ready to come down again whenever he's needed to pick all of us up, wrap his arms around us, restore hope for us, and drag us all across the finish line as a winner for the glory of God because he is our kinsman redeemer and his name is not Mr. Redman. His name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. He will and has Restored our hope. Just like Boaz does for Naomi and Ruth. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you. Thank you for restoration. Thank you for hope. Thank you for your love, for your peace. We praise you. We honor you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now, there may be someone here who is yet to be introduced to Jesus, have yet to surrender to him. We invite you to do that today. If you're here and you'd like to do that, we want to give you that opportunity before we leave. All it takes is just a simple surrender. Come into my heart. Take me. I surrender. I confess my sins. I ask for your forgiveness. I admit that I need a Savior. That's all that's required. 
And if you're here, we invite you to do that. If you're joining us online, you can do it as well. We invite you to do that at home or wherever you are. If you're riding in your car, it might be a good idea to pull over and do it. And just spend some time with him and say, Lord, I'm tired. I'm weary. I'm worn. Precious Lord, take my hand. Lead me on. Help me stand. And he'll do it. He'll come into your heart and he'll change your life. If you've done it, let us know about it. We'd love to pray with you, be here for you. So let us know. With that, if there's no one here that would like to do that, if you're here and you are in search of a church home or you'd like more information about Bethel Hope, uh, let us know. We have some information to give you online as well. Let us know. We have some information we'd like to give you. Don't forget as you're on your way out today to stop by if you have not done done so already and Uh, visit the offering basket or do it online uh, so that we can honor the Lord in our giving. Online, do that as well. Uh, With that, if there's nothing else, remember, Jesus is our Redeemer, and in Him, our hope has been restored. Let's pray. Eternal God, thank you. Thank you. Now unto Him who's able to keep us from falling, and to present us faultless before his presence with exceeding joy. To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, dominion, and power, both now and forever. God bless you all. Amen. You're dismissed.